Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best in every way. When you have a system where there are no female voices of equal value, then it, it, it will be a rife system of abuse. This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory. We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma. The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So, take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. Mary, thank you for joining us again. It's good to be here again. Thanks. This is part two of our interview with Mary DeMuth, author of the book We Too. Mary has written and spoken extensively on sexual abuse within the church and has been a powerful voice as an advocate for victims of sexual abuse. Mary, we touched on this in the last episode. There's a huge gap between the way the church generally handles abuse and the way that it should be responding to abuse as the hands and feet of Jesus. What are some things that churches both the leadership and just people, members of the church, should be implementing and doing that can create a safer environment for survivors of abuse or sexual assault? Well, the best thing first is to start with prevention and to know exactly what best practices are. And every church is going to have a different way of doing that. Uh, my particular church has cameras in every room, um, and they have policies and procedures about how many people can accompany a child to the bathroom and things like that. So that's kind of like if I were a sexual abuse survivor, and I am, and I went to a church and they had no child protection policies, I would be pretty uncomfortable. And then the other thing is just that awareness portion of talking about it publicly from the front of the church, talking about the issue and normalizing it instead of having it be stigmatized by never being talked about. When you never talk about it, it becomes that hush-hush issue. But if you talk talk about it frankly and honestly without triggering people, but just frankly and honestly, you give people permission and safety to begin to talk about it. And I think that causes a lot of feelings of safety for an abuse victim. Mary, I really liked your story. And I've honestly used it as an example since then about the story, the the cat in the city versus the cat in the countryside. I was in Switzerland, which is a lovely place to be. And we took a little boat across the lake to France and had some crepes. And that was lovely. I approached it because I actually like cats. And it was sitting in this cute little stone window. And I approached it and it hissed at me and like hit at me with its paw. And I was like, wow. And I thought, 
well, this cat has probably seen a lot of people bothering it all, all these years because this is definitely a tourist city. And so it's probably like sick of tourists coming up and bothering it. And then the next day, um, I was back in Switzerland and I was taking a walk through just these rolling hills with cowbells and it was just lovely. And I saw this other cat and uh, it was far off. And I thought, well, then that cat's going to stay far off because it's a cat. But I called it and it came and it came and like, went in and out and around my legs and it was just so sweet and let me hold it. And I think what I learned from that, and I felt like God was saying to me, this is the difference between someone who has been continually harmed by trauma. They tend to push away. They tend to hiss a little bit. And those who have been raised in a very nurturing, trusting environment, it's easier for them to trust others. And so we need to give people who have walked through those kind of traumatic places, instead of letting their hissing push us away, to begin to ask the question, why? Why are they doing that? And to have have compassion and empathy for them, that there's a very real reason why people are scary to them. And we need to explore that. It's such a beautiful example of why survivors may be a bit more skittish, or even appear to some as difficult, which is something I've been called. Um, <laughs> that certainly is my experience. On a deeper level, it's just overall very difficult for me to be myself, to trust people openly, to not be defensive, because I'm like that city cat, right? I'm working hard to let my guard down, but I often am unable to accept the love and the care that others are willing to give to me from really good people. So thank you for sharing that, that story. And I think it really sets up this conversation well, because healing is continual. That's a common thing you say in your book, which is very powerful. We must not get frustrated or impatient with survivors, like you said. In your book, you outline the examples of sexual assault in the Bible. I appreciated your sentiments about how we just, I mean, I've never sat in a church. Well, actually, that's not true. One time I heard a sermon about sexual assault in the Bible, and it was from Cindy Dawson. She was in the first season for two episodes. But <laughs> other than that, you know, I don't hear about the stories of sexual assault in the Bible. And so... I really like that you talk about those and you say we don't sit with those verses long enough. And an example you share is that account of the Levite and the concubine. What happens in that story? Well, not a lot of good things happen in that story. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, she is assaulted and he finds her and he, to deal with it, he cuts her up in a bunch of pieces and sends them to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a very difficult story. It's confusing and it kind of shows maybe some of the responses in a metaphorical way, although this is a very real story, uh, how we kind of deal. We don't know what to do with people who have been assaulted. And he was justifiably enraged and, and upset about it, but he didn't do the right thing with it. And I think that's a lot of us. I think right. we feel like, especially if it's not our, our opinion or our experience, we just we're, we're outraged. Like right now we're walking through the Josh Duggar thing and it's much worse than everybody always thought. And of course it is. Yes. We're dealing with people who are like, yeah, I'm outraged, but I don't know what to do with it. And so it is important that we we look at some of these complicated stories of the Bible and they are, we have to remember they're not prescriptive, they're descriptive. So the Lord's not saying, okay, if you ever yes. have a concubine and she gets assaulted, cut her up into 12 pieces. Like it's not descriptive, it's not prescriptive. Don't go out and do this. It's descriptive of the fallenness of humankind. It is an evidence of what happens when people are self-centered and prideful and living for themselves. And we see this in like the destruction of Sodom and 
and Gomorrah. We see it in the destruction of the flood. Almost always it's it comes at the edge of violence toward people. And you have to believe that when God destroyed the earth with flood, that that violence was not just like people hitting each other. I am sure that there was sexual violence. And it shows that God is very concerned when people harm others. You know, we're all image bearers of God. And so when we harm an image bearer, we're harming the heart of God. Mm. What about David and Bathsheba, that example? This gets glossed over all the time. And even to the extent of pastors saying, well, you know, she's bathing on the roof. She's a seductress. And when I did my research on this, this was the normal time to bathe because everyone else is out. They're working. So you're not going to be seen. And this was a common practice of every single person. Plus, she had just had her period. And so she was doing her ritual godly cleanse that she was supposed to do after she has had that because she was unclean. And so she was going to her mikvah, which is a little bath, and she was cleansing herself. And that's also why we know that it could not have been, it had to have been David's child because she hadn't slept with her husband and she had just had her period. And so when he slept with her, she was ready Mm. to be impregnated. The other thing I thought about recently, as I've kind of thought about her even more is there's never any mention of her having children with Uriah the Hittite prior. There's never a mention of she brought her children with her or there was children. And, And I kind of wonder, maybe she was barren. And because if they had been married for a period of time and there was no offspring, so she may have had the complicated stress of being barren, being taken against her will to the palace. She could do nothing about that. She was just a subject. She was, this was definitely an abuse of power. But then to find out that you're pregnant when perhaps you've been trying to get pregnant your whole marriage, and then you know it's not Uriah's and just the complication of that. So all that to say David and Bathsheba is a story of harm, and it is always, whenever you see Nathan the prophet, when you see it talked about in the New Testament, they all point the finger, God points the finger at David, never, ever at Bathsheba. Sorry, I got a little excited there. I love that you said that. Yes, no, that's, you apologize always for preaching, and I'm like, go off, Mary, <laughs> speak your truth, get it. I am all about that. I feel the same way though. I'm like, oh, I got to turn it down. I'm on my soapbox, <laughs> but you are great. What do we learn about consent and power dynamics in these two stories? Well, this is also similar to a pedophilia as well, because when someone says, well, I had a sexual relationship with a 12 year old, well, there's no possibility for consent there because of the power dynamic. And so you can have a power dynamic of age like that. You can have a power dynamic of that guy's the king. So what can you do? Or you can have a power dynamic of society where a woman just can't She's not able to say no, she's not, it's not that she's incapable of it, but because of her society and where she is and her economic status or whatever, this causes her to just have to acquiesce. Maybe she fights back, of course, but you know, you see this in some immigrant issues as well, where they're so desperate to have a job that they will tolerate uh, sexual harassment because what else are they going to do? If they say anything about it, they lose their job and they lose the food on their table. How does the way that we kind of gloss over these instances of sexual assault and how we interpret David being a man after God's own heart, and he also sexually assaulted someone, (laughs) how does all of this kind of shape our view of power abuse? I think 
we don't have to look very far in our recent society with Jelaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein and what they did together and Weinstein. And you see these people who have extreme power, and especially when they hold economic things over your head. You know, you look at the Jeffrey Epstein case, and these were kids, these were kids on the other side of the tracks. These were girls who had no economics and they were be given $100, $200. This was everything to them. Or in Weinstein's case, I'll never work in Hollywood again if I don't do this. And so we, we forget, I think, about the economic ties to this as well. Yeah. And, and that reminds me of rape within marriages because a lot of times and in some churches, actually, like the one I grew up in, they believe that the woman's body is not her own, but to be used for the man's pleasure. And that is not consent. That is rape, which I didn't know was controversial, but apparently it is. Even within marriages, there's that power imbalance, especially when, which is often the case in these churches, that the wife is economically dependent on the husband. Exactly. And so, and then if you're in a church structure that says, you know, just take it. I mean, we've heard some of John Piper's language about, well, if she's just slapped around a little bit, it's no big deal. So just be quiet and endure it. It almost makes it sound like, well, when he says something like that, it makes it sound like men are made in the image of God and women are not. Men are worthy of having all their needs and satisfactions satisfied. Women are not. Uh, men are worthy of protection, but women are not. And so I think we have to come back to there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We are all image bearers of God, and we're all on that level playing field. And when you get to some of those submissive verses, there's still the higher one of submit to one another. My marriage works well because we both do that. It wouldn't work well if there was one dominant and one submissive. I mean, it does work for a time, but after a while, it can't flourish. But when you have this constant like, no, I'm going to serve you. No, I'm going to serve you. No, I'm going to serve you. That's a whole different marriage right there. And I, I like that marriage much better yeah. than the, oh, he's my boss and I am going to cower beneath him. Also, what we see in Jesus, right? We don't see Jesus saying, I have the power of God in me. So all of you must serve me, right? He has the power of God within him. And yet he doesn't consider equality with God, something to be grasped. He empties himself of power. So even if you do think that men innately are created with more power, a man who believes that should be following after Jesus and emptying himself of his, of his power to empower others and empower his wife. And so I just get so angry when people say that, that hierarchy of marriage is God's design because it literally was not his design for himself and his operations of the world. When we really take the time to consider these passages in, in the right context, when I look at them, I see, going back to kind of what you said about descriptive scripture versus prescriptive scripture, it seems obvious to me that we're supposed to be horrified at the injustice that happens in these passages. Unfortunately, churches a lot of times, or sometimes some churches and some Christians still use these scriptures to justify oppression of women. Often they use it to justify abuse, silencing, covering up all of this different kinds of abuse and sexual assault. What is your response? when someone tries to use those kinds of scriptures as prescriptive for how we're supposed to view women in these contexts? I would say that they, pro I would say, have you read your whole Bible? Mm -hmm. And that sounds really snarky. I don't mean it that way. 
But if you look at the themes of the Bible and you read the Bible in its entirety, you will see that whenever there is sexual violence, like a rape, there is almost always, and I'm I think it's always, but just just for the sake of, you know, maybe the, you might find one instance not. War is the result. So when there is a violent act against somebody sexually, war happens later. And so this is how powerful and how awful it is that it causes even more bloodshed. So bloodshed begets bloodshed. And so therefore, as you said, these are descriptive and the end result is war and killing so how can that possibly be good? That's such a good observation and so powerful. I'd like to revisit something you said earlier when you said blame. Who does God blame when David rapes Bathsheba? God blames David. Mm-hmm. Blame in your book, you say blame rests solely on the shoulders of the violator, not the violated. And in your book, you also share the story about Tamar and her brothers in Genesis as a common response we see to sexual assault. What was that response and why is it still so common? Yeah, I was very dismissive and it was just so typical because people just think, well, you know, just get over that. It's just your brother or it's that guy that did that. It's no big deal. And I think we are uncomfortable with uh, trauma and pain. We don't like it. We want everyone to be happy. And trauma is complicated and long. It takes a long time to get through. I'm still working through it right now. So it would be easier just to put some platitudes on someone than to really listen to them and just say, hey, you know, uh, I'm really sorry that happened instead of, well, what were you wearing? And what kind of blame can I put on you? Or, you know, this is no big deal. Or just be quiet. That's what her, his response to her was just be quiet. Just be quiet. I think that's probably from the pit of hell because as I often tell audiences, an untold story never heals. And so when someone tells you to be quiet, they're basically shortchanging your healing journey. And I would say that the enemy of our souls would like us to be silent, would like us not to let the story out because in that darkness, as we've talked about before, it festers. But once we let it out, then we have a chance to see it in the light and name evil for what it is and move forward. I love how in your book, you talk about the story of the blind man that Jesus healed and how the people around Jesus initially asked what what the man's sin was, assumed that it was because of his own sin or his parents' sin, that that was why he was blind. And and in your book, you talked about, you said he should be called the patron mm-hmm. saint of the, the survivors of sexual assault or abuse. How does that story relate to a very like the common experience of survivors. Right. We are used to hearing a lot of platitudes and a lot of blame leveled at us and and trying to find fault. And I think why we do that is we don't want it to happen to us. And so we try to kind of tether out or tease out what that person did to get that, you know, to receive that trauma. And it's it's because we're always trying to figure out, you know, well, I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want it to happen to my kids. And so when we try to tease it out, instead of saying something like evil exists in the world and there are evil people out there who hurt people, we say, well, what did you do to attract that evil person? Or in this case of the blind man, well, what did he do to be blind? He's obviously had, there's a consequence, blindness, and he must have done some bad sin to receive that consequence, but he didn't. And Jesus was very clear. This is just, this is just the thing. This happens. This is a fallen world. We've got the, the, 
Example of Job, righteous man, did all the right things, still had stuff happen to him. And I think that gets back to what is the gospel. The gospel is not this anemic everything's going to be happy once you meet Jesus. It's no, things are going to still happen to you. You're still going to go through hell, but you have someone, a friend (laughs) to walk you through that hell and uh, he will be with you through the, through it all. To, to tell victims this had something to do with you and what you did is just more trauma heaped up on, on top of trauma, which is horrible. Well, plus it doesn't keep in mind the idea of a predator and prey. And we're not thinking yeah. about wolves and sheep here. That the sheep, they can't do anything to prevent a wolf from grabbing them. And it's not the sheep's yeah. fault. The sheep was just walking around expecting to be shepherded by the shepherd and not. And when the shepherd stepped away, the, she, the wolf came in and grabbed it. I mean, it didn't do anything to deserve that. So we have to remember there are predatory people and those who are preyed upon did not ask for it, never would ask for it. Who would ever want that? Exactly. That That is the problem is we don't want to admit that that happens within our safe community or the communities that we believe are safe. Mm-hmm. Lots of Christians will say, going back to what you were saying before about equality among people and how all people are equally image bearers of God. A lot of Christians will you know, say they believe that all people equally bear the image of God, but too often we still kind of use scripture to legalistically hold women in places of relative inequality, like silencing them or putting them in positions of relative powerlessness, which opens the door for abusive situations. What are some microaggressions or common practices in churches that we often overlook that really compromise the safety of women, marginalized people, survivors? That's a huge question. I don't know if I can accurately answer it because the answer would take me about an hour to explain. But it's another book. Yeah, it is. Yeah, sure. I'll just do that in my spare time. But I think I think I'll come down to when you have a system where there are no female voices of equal value, then it, it it will be a rife system of abuse. Because if there are no female voices, then that perspective never gets talked about. And on a micro level and a little tiny way is just even going to church and hearing the same metaphors over and over again about, you know, sports or whatever, um, because the, the pastors tend to be male and it, it makes you kind of feel like you're part, not part of this club and that you're not part of the structure of that church or that, that entity. And so I think a lot of things happen when women are not given a voice Or if you've got like a megalomaniac at the top, like a a Weinstein or a Jeffrey Epstein, and they don't have any accountability in any sort of way, then of course, if they are at the top of that pyramid, there's nobody else that can talk to them on their level that will call them to account. And that's a problem I see with a lot of churches where we're seeing churches with big mega leaders Uh, eliminating elders. And, you know, I don't want to get into like, what's an elder, what's a deacon and all that. But all that to say, they're eliminating the very, the only people that could speak life into them, or they cause them to be so anemic that they just dismiss everything they say. And we saw this even in Willow Creek that had female elders. It didn't matter because the structure was such that the person at the top had all authority. And that's where I think we get into trouble. I was just thinking today about how if we never have 
women speaking from the pulpit to both males and females. If we never do that in a church, a young girl, which is my case, would never see themselves able to speak and lead and teach, which is what happened to me. And so now that I'm an adult and my theology has changed on that, I'm preaching for the first time this Sunday. And and it's very difficult for me mm-hmm. to, I, I'm dealing with a lot of tension because I've never seen that modeled for me until I started attending the church I attend eight years ago. And so we just miss so many people who would be great leaders for God's kingdom by not representing them from the pulpit. And so I'm glad that that's my high horse. So, (laughs) Well, I'll tell you a little story. When I was in my late 20s, early 30s, um, I don't typically have a vision of anything. Like I usually am not a visionary, like God gives me this vision. But this happened to me and I had this vision and I was standing in front of a crowd and I couldn't number it. It was a large crowd. It was a large auditorium. And there were both men and women in that auditorium. And at this point in my walk with Christ, and I'd been in for, you know, 15, 20 years by this time, you know, I've walked with Christ a long time. And I lived in a pretty, you know, progressive area. I was living in the Pacific Northwest at the time. But in my mind, I thought, I don't understand this vision because I can't do that. I'm not allowed to say anything to a mixed group. If all that crowd was women, I would be okay. So it was perplexing for me. And I didn't, I was confused. Like, why would God give me that vision if it's supposed to be unfulfilled? And then, you know, I flashed forward to being able to speak and pray at the Southern Baptist Convention where it was mostly men. And that memory came back to me of, okay, I see it now, but I didn't think that I could ever fulfill it. I thought it was a weird, like a, it was like something dangled in front of me that would never happen. I'm so glad you spoke at that convention. I was there and that's where I bought your book. And <laughs> oh, awesome. oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Girl power. <laughs> yeah. So there's this theme in the Bible that it feels like we just too often skip over it. This theme of justice. I, I feel like we have. In evangelical churches, we emphasize grace and sometimes cheap grace mm-hmm. a little bit too much. And we don't talk about justice. What What is going on in the church that, that this grace is prioritized over justice and there's not this balance really anymore? And why do perpetrators and predators often receive far more grace than the victims and survivors of abuse? I flat out can't understand that. But I will say that I have one, I'm a literary agent and one of my clients is writing a book about this very thing. And I just pitched it today. So I'm praying that it will have favor out there in the publishing world. But she's taking the theme of grace and justice throughout the whole Bible. And it's brilliant. And she's coming from a very strong theological perspective. And if you put the, I think part of it is we haven't put that lens on. So when we read the whole Bible, we don't think, oh, I wonder if righteousness and grace can coexist. And if you read through the whole Old and New Testament, you see it all the time. And then if you think, well, do those two exist with Jesus? Oh, yes, they do. (laughs) You can't have both. And cheap grace, what Bonhoeffer coined, is grace without repentance. And so I am I'm sorry, but if someone feels bad for getting caught for harming someone and they cry, that doesn't necessarily mean they're repentant. It means they were caught and they're sad that they got caught. If they're a pedophile, they have had hundreds of victims. It's the stats are very clear. And so, but they know how to work a room. And so we are more convinced by the tears of a pedophile than we are by the tears of a victim. In your book, you say all crime is a sin not all sin is a crime. 
Why is it so important for us to know the difference between that? Well, right. So I sin often. (laughs) I have to ask God for forgiveness all the time. But that sin does not land me in jail. There's a big difference between going to the Lord and getting on my knees and repenting for saying that white lie or trying to say something to make me look cool or whatever, versus uh, a human being who constantly spends their life learning how to pray on little children. That is a crime. That is different. And there is degrees of depravity. And we see it in Romans 1. God gave them over. And I can't think of a better example than a pedophile who has been given over to their desires and they continually, continually think about how they can perfect their technique so that they can do it more and more and more. It's why we see with Josh Duggar that the images that he downloaded were, uh, I can't even talk about them, um, just so depraved. One of the things that I really appreciate in your in your book is your push to share stories and to report abuse, report crimes, because crimes are criminal and they belong with the police, not the church. But that's really hard to do. And sometimes reporting abuse is risky. Why is that? Well, first of all, I'll say we have to if it is a minor. So if if you know about a minor being harmed, I don't care how uncomfortable that is, you have to report it. It's part it's the law, you have to. And even if it's not the law, I think it's the law of love. You have to because they cannot defend themselves. Where it gets tricky is when you have an adult person who has been harmed by somebody else and now we're talking about volition and you don't want to like go behind their back and tell their story for them. That involves a lot more nuance and conversation and support. So you can say things like, wow, that's terrible. Have you ever reported it to the police? Have you ever felt comfortable doing that? No, I don't want to or whatever. We need to respect their right to do that. However, if they're 12 years old, 15 years old, we have a right, we have to report it. Yeah, for sure. There's people have all kinds of opinions about should victims be pushed to report or should they just be supported in whatever their decision is or and then there's the whole other side of that issue where sometimes they're silenced or they're told not to report because you'll ruin grandpa's life. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. The reputation of the perpetrator. But yeah, every situation is different and when it's an adult who's in that situation you're right. They are the expert on their situation and they know all the factors involved and are uniquely in this position to make the best decision for their life, the safest decision and the decision that makes the most sense for them about reporting. It's important to remember that it's important that the survivor needs to have agency over that choice mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they don't have agency. In any other they choice. They didn't have right. agency <laughs> before. And it's just important that they feel empowered to make that decision for themselves. Well, and plus the justice system chews up victims and spits them out. And so rarely yeah. is there ever justice. And so I can... I have a friend who's walking through that with their child right now, and it has been just hell on earth. And so let's talk about reopening the wounds of your child who's gone through this. I have another person who um, I heard her story. She actually went and testified against her father, you know, decades ago and as an eyewitness to it happening to her. And they declared him not guilty, even though she was there crying on the stand. And so it's just like, it's not, it just does. And so we have to also go in if someone says, I want to report I think we also have to remind them that earthly justice is never perfect. 
It's never what you want it to be. And you, it's not going to fix your healing journey. You're still going to have to walk the healing journey. And most likely it's going to be harder when you walk through that justice system. And because no one's prepared for the, the terrible questions that come your way and the delays and the delays and the delays. And especially when churches are involved and they just keep delaying it and say, we didn't do anything wrong. And all that stuff is just so frustrating. Mm. Speaking of justice, I already plan to talk about the Ducker, the Duggars in this episode as a case study, but new information came out just a few days before we recorded, and we have to talk about how this famous evangelical fundamentalist Christian family, whose son was already outed for sexually abusing his sisters and a babysitter, and then now, several years later, was arrested on charges of soliciting images of child sexual assault. Several years ago, the truth finally came out about his sister's abuse and his babysitter's abuse, the writing was already on the wall. Survivors already knew that that he was a perpetrator and he was going to continue to harm people. And five years ago, when it originally came out, or six years ago now about his abuse, it was a really tough time to be a survivor. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting among a group of coworkers who I thought were really compassionate and kind before this instance. And then all of them had become a sexual assault experts. They excused (laughs) the behavior of the brothers. They shamed the sisters and the babysitter. They shamed, they blamed the culture for making it such a big deal instead of the abuser. And several times I just had to leave the room. Mm -hmm. I had to excuse myself because I could feel my, my body just like exploding, coming hotter and exploding. (laughs) And like, I'm about to say things that I can't put back Mm -hmm. in my mouth. Mm -hmm. It was really difficult to hear all this empathy going to Josh Duggar excusing his behavior and saying things like if the girls were bothered by it, they would have reported it when it happened, which is the like, like that, that especially bothered me because of my case, all of my peers, all of a sudden had an opinion about the validity of sexual assault accusations. And I did not hear one person grieve or lament the abuse. And now it's like everyone's shocked. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. He actually sought out images of children being sexually assaulted. The writing was on the wall. It was clear. It was known. I just have to know how this week has been for you. How was it for you five years ago? How, what all can we learn about Christian culture in this case? It's a lot, but I I think it's a perfect example of what we're talking about. Well, when it broke, I was mad and I wrote two op-eds for the Washington Post about it because I felt like this was a family system that uh, kind of heralded the perpetrator and um, dismissed the victims. And I, when I saw that he had been arrested by the feds and uh, Homeland Security, I was like, that's totally child sexual assault images, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, that was confirmed. Um it almost, I don't want to say I told you so, but I feel like a lot of victims are saying, I told you so because we knew it was going to keep happening. And I, I'm a little bit tired of the shock about it. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Um, no, it was very clear that if he had those kind of tendencies then, and we know that it was not dealt with, it not certainly was not dealt with in a judicial way, but it was not dealt with in a... Um, any sort of way. And interestingly enough, which I think is fascinating, when you look at uh, child sexual abusers, so people who are in their teens that are abusing, um, there's actually some really good news about that. And that is when they're in their teens and they've assaulted, if they're caught then and they go through rehabilitation, 
there's a lot better chance that they will be okay for the rest of their lives. It's when they're not, and they continue down that cycle through their 20s and 30s, that it just becomes ingrained. And it's almost nearly impossible for them to change their orientation. And so here we have an example of someone who his parents could have done the right thing. I mean, I think they sent him to like a camp or something, but um, or work, he had to go work for yes. somebody like that's going to do anything. So uh, hear the sarcasm in my voice. But yeah, I've been just, I've been kind of just frustrated with Christian culture saying, oh my gosh, I'm so surprised because it's 100% not surprising to me. I really liked your sentiment about how we often exist in the echo chamber of our own opinions instead of washing the feet of those who are different from us. And that's certainly what I observed in my community and in my family after that story came out. They were echoing the rhetoric of the people mm -hmm. who believed like them. Instead of stopping and just saying, wait a minute, let me listen and love first before I respond, before I judge, before I dismiss, because we must listen and love the survivor first, the story mm -hmm. of the person who was harmed first, because they are the ones who did literally nothing. They are the sheep. Like you say, they did nothing to have this happen to us. But so often what we hear said is that we've got to listen and love the perpetrator too. So what do you say about that? You know what? To love a perpetrator is to tell the truth and mete out justice for what they have done. To love a perpetrator is not to allow them to have this false um, sense of quasi-repentance or cheap repentance. To love them is to tell them the truth and let them suffer the consequences for what they have done. We have not understood what love is. Love is not covering over sin. Love is exposing sin. And that is the most loving thing. That's why parents discipline their children. If we didn't love our kids, we just let them run wild, but we love them. So we say, don't run out into the street. And if you run out in the street, you're going to get in trouble and you might get killed by hit, <laughs> hit by a car because we love our children. We create boundaries. So why is it suddenly unloving to do that to a perpetrator who has harmed many, many, many people? I just think we've gotten it wrong. And to love someone mm -hmm. is, sure, we can listen, but if they are um, someone who has trained their mind to harm people over and over again, we have to go back to those narratives by Jesus and Paul who say, beware of the wolves, the wolves in sheep's clothing. They come to you disguised. They are ruining the church. And that's why I feel like sexual abuse is the greatest tool of the enemy of our souls because it ruins our hearts, it ruins our minds, it ruins our bodies, it ruins everything. And we have this mountain we have to climb, this muddy mountain we have to scale to be able to kind of get back into normal society. And so that's what I would say. How many reports of sexual assault are actually false? Not very many. And if they are, there's a mental health issue associated with it. And so even then, we still have to be compassionate because we have to ask the question, why would this person give this false report? Because there's usually some reason why they would. Um, and so that's why I always say, err on the side of belief. It'll get, if you err on the side of belief and, and then turn it into the authorities, it'll get sifted out. They can easily find out if that's true or not. And I, I, I'm kind of concerned by male leaders who are like so freaked out about, well, you know, anyone could say anything about me. Well, if you're walking well with the Lord, the Lord is your defender and he will, I know that it's hard to have some, you know, false report against you, but it's exceedingly rare. 
And I kind of wonder if maybe people who are saying that are wondering, looking back over their lives and going, oh, I wonder when I did that to that person, if that was assault, you know what I mean? Like they might be have some skeletons in their closet that uh, makes the fear real to them. Mary, you have a whole chapter in your book that talks about the power of secrets. What are some reasons that survivors of sexual assault often feel the need to keep silent or to keep secrets? Well, there's definitely, especially in a, a closed family system, that's probably the easiest one to look at. You know, if you tell you're going to ruin uncle so-and-so's life, that thing is huge. And one of the people I'm uh, friends with, she was talking about how she had this really great relationship with all of her cousins. But when she came out and said, this happened to me, the family got split right down the middle and suddenly she had no more cousin time. And so she had to bear the weight of that. And I think that's, you know, that's why people don't tell because there are consequences. You will mess up someone's reputation and which they deserve, but it still will happen and it will divide a family and uh, it will divide a church. And so that secret is sometimes I think a lot of us are like, well, yeah, this is terrible, but it's going to be worse if I tell. So I'm just going to keep, I'm going to take one for the team here and not tell. What would it look like for churches to give up reputation, power, and stability and truly focus on being the hands and feet of Jesus to the marginalized and the abused? I think it comes from the leadership and the culture of leadership within the church. And that culture has to be more about humility and confession of sin and repentance of sin than it is about preserving reputation. God is very capable of preserving reputation. It's not our job to do. And I, I think that we need to be more consumed with the holiness of Jesus than we are consumed with our standing in the community. And that's why I always appreciate it when a healthy church, you know, I've seen a couple examples of a healthy church where they find out, oh, something happened 10 years ago. A healthy church will say, oh my goodness, we're so sorry. I wasn't there at the time, but I apologize. I repent. I'm you know, here's all the things that we're going to do for you. Here's, you know, here, here's the dates that this person was at our church and here's a hotline and here's what we're going to do. And uh, if you need counseling like that to me is what a shepherd would do, right? You're taking care of your sheep that have been harmed. And it's more important about the reputation of the holiness of God than it is your own personal holiness. And so it's important I think people are more attracted to an honest church like that and a church that repents and admits. Why do we keep thinking that, oh, no, if I admit I'm wrong, people won't like me anymore. If, we, if our church admits an error, then it will it will shrink. Well, OK, let it shrink a little bit, but do the right thing, because you're going to be held to account on the day of judgment. And wouldn't you rather have done the right thing? and protected the innocent rather than protected the guilty? I think we forgot. (laughs) I don't know. How does your church, Mary, do this? How does your church represent women and survivors while also holding intention, maybe differing views of women in the Bible? I go to a Southern Baptist church, a large one in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We have, I was actually one of the first people to woman to be on the stage in that church. Um, we are continuing to host voices like that. 
And I think we're moving more toward um, having that kind of voice. We have people in executive leadership who are women. And so things have transitioned and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I always think there's more to do, but when you're a girl in the South and uh, you might hear from my accent, I'm not from the South, yep. but uh, you learn to live within the parameters that are given to you. And my little joke is that I can preach a sermon north of the Mason-Dixon line usually, but not south of it. So I think I said this maybe in our last interview, but that it's it can be a little frustrating. We'll just put it that way. Like Mary, like you say so many times in your book, I love it because I so know why you say it. I love the church. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have a deep, deep, long-lasting love for the church. The church heals me. The church brings me closer to Jesus and my creator. And Unfortunately, all things aren't right yet. Shalom, perfect peace is not going to be possible on this side of heaven, but I have hope for God's kingdom to be here on earth as it is in heaven. And I am going to be relentless in my pursuit of building God's kingdom here on earth right now so that we can experience the fullness of God now as close as we can on this side of heaven. Amen. That'll preach. I conclude the book by that little bit of a metaphor of this, the water and, you know, a little bit of drops here and there. I can see them like dropping on the dusty ground and not making much of a difference except for that little spot of earth. And we're not where we should be yet. As you said, I love the church and that's why I wrote the book. I didn't write the book to condemn the church. I wrote the book to encourage and to be a prophetic voice for what could be because I believe that revival is on the cusp, and but revival never comes unless there's repentance yeah. first. And so part of this uh, drop by drop, river by river, ocean by ocean, comes by all of us coming together and using our voices um, in humbleness and humility and saying, this isn't right and we need to do better. And so I think that's uh, my heart for writing We Too, and I'm seeing it. I'm seeing some of it happen, and that's been really encouraging because as a pioneering voice, as someone who has been talking about this issue since the 90s and not being received well until just recently, that's a lot of jungle to hack through, and yeah. it's mostly thorny, and there's lots of snakes and things. People are biting at me, and I get all sorts of, you know, negative things. It's, it's humbling and sweet to see some, some light come into this situation. I hope that our river joins your river <laughs> and joins all the rivers that go before us into this mighty, powerful river of justice. Mm -hmm. And I thank you for, for walking through that jungle and, and for being a pioneer. You've paved the way for me, and mm. I'm thankful for you. That's sweet. Thanks. Thank you, Mary, for, for joining us. Listeners, Go to your favorite bookstore or your favorite bookstore's website. Look up Mary DeMuth. Go buy all of her books. She has 43 <laughs> of them. All of them are phenomenal and wonderful. Thank you, Mary, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon, which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us. Visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and I also want to recognize the All at Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director, Molly Bays is our social media manager, and Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. 
A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs in Friendswood. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. If you-